I was imprisoned by Solomon precisely because I cried out my heart's desire only by granting you yours may I earn my release. Yes, well, I appreciate the symmetry, but the thing is this. I cannot for the life of me summon up one eligible wish, and you're asking me for three. Is there any life in you? Are you even alive? You know, in some cultures, absence of desire means in life. Then you are a pious fool. If I'm content, why tempt fate? And you're a coward. Don't goad me. There is no human, no angel, no djinn that wouldn't grasp at the chance to fulfill their deepest longings, and I am saddled with the one who claims to want nothing at all. Alethea Bini, you are a liar. You know, I am beginning to wish we'd never met. <laughs> Pod, a 32 Fans podcast, where we discuss all things movies, past, present, and occasionally future. My name is Sammy Chester. And I'm John Gilpatrick, and today we are going to be briefly talking about the movies of August 2022. Sammy, I don't know about you, I was thinking about our podcast. The thing that we do by recording monthly is we're sort of closing the door on a month. And I was thinking about this and came to the conclusion that August is the easiest month of the year to close the door on, both in terms of movies, but also in general. I tend to associate it as lead up to the Jewish holidays, which kind of fall in a bunch in usually mid-late September. I tend to think of it, I guess, as going back to school, even though I haven't done that in a while. I tend to think of it as like leading up to the football season, excited by like what Sundays and Mondays mean for football. There's a bit of prep because I've been doing fantasy football for the last five, six years. So there's yeah. a kind of a catching up on content as well. Football being around the corner is always a big deal. Kind of antsy to get through August where I'm located at least like the weather goes from intolerable to starting <laughs> to feel really comfortable. Movie wise, the last couple Augusts especially I feel like have been pretty dreary. Even if September doesn't have a ton of like great new releases that you're super excited about, the ones that you are really excited about are right around the corner because they're in large cases, premiering at festivals. This is not a movie podcast, as if there are any others, that will try to play up movies because, hey, you know, if people aren't excited about movies, they aren't excited about this podcast, and then for they won't listen. You know, we're talking because we, you and I enjoy talking about movies, even, you know, I guess in months like this where they're a little less exciting. I, at least, I'm never going to go out there to try to, like, build up that movies are better than they are. Movies are underwhelming, then I'll say it. And I think the movies this month I saw, outside of some, like, catch-ups that I caught up from earlier in the year, the August movies I saw were pretty underwhelming. And that is what it is. Even at the beginning of the month, I had shared something on the Twitter account. August actually looks kind of exciting. We have George Miller. We have Idris Elba putting out a few movies. You know, Aubrey Plaza, right. who's someone people like. Like, I try, you know, Brad Pitt at the start of the month came out with Bullet Train. So I kind of tried to, like, press on the brakes a bit at the beginning of the month and play it up. Looking at it now, it really wasn't anything. Could have skipped all the movies that came out. And I don't think there's anything really to catch up. Now, does that mean that it's not worth still tuning in to listen to people discuss movies? I leave that to the listener. <laughs> but I was still excited, to obviously, to speak to you. Should we start with sort of an off-topic item? Or do you want to jump yeah, right so into Yeah, okay. so the comments that we've done for the last few years on this podcast for August is that our Big Brother podcast, so to speak, has a very 
bomb-related theme in the month of August. So the last few years, we've spoken about our favorite movies with bombs in them. We've spoken about the movies that bombed at the box office that we nevertheless liked. And I know the bomb movie that was on both of our minds come this August, because I think originally it was coming out, as you said, like right around the corner in September or October, was the next big Chris Nolan movie about Oppenheimer the fellow who invented the atomic bomb. It ended up being pushed off, I think, what, all the way till almost next August? Next summer, so, yeah. Yeah, I think it's coming out now in the end of July 2023. But still, yeah. thought, you know, let's keep things in the spirit of the 2022 August. John, if a friend of yours said, hey, what movies should I see to get in the mood for Oppenheimer, to get in the mood of both a movie by Nolan, but also a movie about the invention of the atomic bomb? not be the same few people laughed few people cried most people were silent I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture the Bhagavad Gita Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that will kind of get me into the spirit of the import of what that means dr strangelove just makes a little bit too much sense here and actually yeah. just watched it about a week ago coincidentally you know it for me is one of my probably five or ten favorite movies of all time obviously it's satirical and going to take a different approach to atomic bombing than oppenheimer most likely will how a nolan would touch on something like uh, an atomic bomb being introduced is kind of curious because you're completely right. I mean, Strange Love is very much an editorial. It's very much a comment yeah. on how people relate to the bomb and like how the bomb impacts politics and society and, you know, even masculinity and whatnot. How much from Nolan movies you've seen, you kind of think Nolan would have a particular angle on that. How like editorialized are his movies been to date? The only movie of his that I can think of that is based on like you know, set in the real world so to speak is mm -hmm. dunkirk right i mean mm -hmm. has he made anything else that is based off of you know real people or i guess real events in that case kind of a blank slate like i mean dunkirk i mentioned that movie was like so aggressively not character focused so mm -hmm. now you've got a movie like the title of it is a person's name it's obviously going to be some kind of biopic of a period in a person's life i don't really know how he's going to approach that it's uncharted territory and that's one of the things that makes me excited about that movie in a way that thought i would be less excited about the next chris nolan movie after the last two that i wasn't a huge fan of that unknown that huh, okay let's see how he does this go to the movies and forget about the real world about chris nolan movies particularly yeah. sort of how bombastic and big they are but I think with Oppenheimer, it's very much a real character set in the real world, someone who did something which transformed the world. And, and you have to grapple with that. Yeah, yeah. So when I think of the atomic bomb, I always think of the Rosenbergs, communist couple that uh, were tried and accused of sort of passing over 
the nuclear secrets, I guess, that Oppenheimer had developed to the Soviets, fast, you know, hastening their having a bomb as well. And the Rosenbergs right. were convicted. They were both executed. I think it's, it's certainly the last execution of a married couple in American history. It might have been the only one to date. Mrs. Rosenberg might have known, but she certainly wasn't involved. Um, either way, it was a pretty red scare, I think, type reaction yeah. to where the U.S. was at the time. And so there's a movie that came. So I've always kind of associated the espionage or sort of the passing of secrets around that. Uh, there was a small movie with Judy Dench came out a few years ago. Like a Judy Dench is a British lady involved in the development of the atomic bomb. And then she's, I think, a communist in it. And then she also sort of is involved in passing over secrets to the Soviets. I want to say it's like called like Red Judy called Red Joan. It came out in huh. 2018. Judy Dench and then a bunch of sort of character actors. I liked it at the time. Again, like it's very much British character actors kind of squeezing everything for all they got. It's not a great movie on its own merits. It sort of gets you into the spirit of the time. The next one I'd probably mention for a lot of the reasons you kind of spoke to a few minutes ago, the uh, Hayao Miyazaki, The Wind Rises. Have you, you've seen this movie? My second movie was going to be Grave of the Fireflies. Both went in an animated direction. Um, So the yeah. reason I chose... The Wind Rises is really about this guy invents, and I'm going to really kind of butcher it because it's been a long time since I've seen this movie, Aviation Inventor, his love of aviation and how purely he sort of views what he does, but his inventions are being used to conduct really bad things. And he's kind of reckoning with that and what that means about who he is and what he does. And I think in that respect, a really interesting movie, the morality of his work is a piece that could sort of inform what the Nolan movie is going to do. If you go into thinking Spirited yeah. Away or something, and then you have historical drama, I saw The Wind Rises as well a bunch of years ago. This is someone who dreams of flight and who dreams of, you know, everything that that entails. He's also developed the fighter aircraft, which will lead to Japan dominating its neighbors and Pearl Harbor and World War II from a Japanese dying. angle. Yeah. It leads really well into Grave of the Fireflies, yeah. which again, it's been a while since I've seen it. I think Grave of the Fireflies came out, you know, it's one of the very first um, Miyazaki movies. So it's a movie about like two young Japanese, like a, a, a young brother and, and his younger sister who he's taking care of. Final months of World War II and how they're caring for each other. And they're obviously very poor as well. And they just don't have many resources. And in the context of the war and Japan sort of falling apart, two of them are sort of trying to hold on to their sanity and hold on to their lives, etc. Don't think we definitively get atomic end of Japan, but you certainly get feeling of the entire collapse on society that is happening in parallel. I'm constantly thinking as I'm watching the movie, okay, and then, you know, one of their civilian cities is about to be kind of just laid waste. I mean, the mood of Grave of the Fireflies really stays with you even beyond the, the plot itself. Curious that we both were with Miyazaki. I actually yeah. like yours a bit more than mine, but I think the two of those together, one of the best uh, lead-ins one could have for Nolan. Uh, what was the Surprising. last one that you went? The uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane isn't necessarily about like a nuclear disaster, although I sort of subtext of that. If you remove the alien, a third act brings it into this you know world that was created in the original movie. Really just sort of about paranoia in a shelter for an apocalyptic event. Uh, have you ever seen The Mist? No. It came out, I think, in like 2006 or seven. But it's a horror movie. Uh, it's based on a Stephen King, I want to say, novel. Small kind of seaside town. And there's just this like mysterious mist that descends mm -hmm. on it. 
and all these people trapped in a grocery store and there's monsters in the mist what they do when they sort of are feeling like trapped and that maybe they're all gonna die absolutely wild wild horror movie probably one of my all-time favorite horror movies and i couldn't recommend it highly enough it doesn't totally fit like the on theme but i think like it's of a piece with 10 Cloverfield Lane. So I'm, my mind drifted there, getting outside of the realm of Hoffenheim here a little bit. Uh, Fallout. If they yeah, go Fallout off, here's where we're at. Fallout. Yeah. My third actually is exactly in the same direction. It's not a horror movie. It's kind of maybe the opposite in that sense because it's, it's light and kind of cute. Yeah. Uh, but there's a really great animated movie. I think it's Stop Animation that came out a bunch of years ago. Um, it came out like, you know, before I was born, I caught up with it years later or around the time I was born. It's called When the Wind Blows. It's a British animated mm-hmm. movie. And When the Wind Blows is about a very kind of stuffy British couple. I guess I'm going full circle because I'm coming back to another British movie after the, the Red Judy Dench. Um, when the Wind Blows is about this kind of like old British couple who are trying to like lead like a life of normalcy after a nuclear attack. And so they're kind of living in, I guess, nuclear winter. They're living in like the fallout from the attack and they're still going about their business. Like, you know, he's trying to do the vegetables and like, you know, she's trying to like make dinner or whatnot. Stuffy, very British proper family. They're living their lives as if almost nothing happened, despite the fact Britain has been destroyed in the movie and, you know, there's been a nuclear attack, etc. Context of sadness and, and obviously doom. But at the same time, there's like a lightness and acuteness how they're living their their lives. So that's when the wind blows would be my third. And, uh, you know, it's similar to the mist and uh, Cloverfield Lane, I suppose, or 10 Cloverfield, where people are living with the after effects. In this case, a bit more, you know, obvious from what Oppenheimer gifted us with. Those are the Oppenheimer prep movies that we recommend for you this month as you gear up for what we thought would be a movie coming out uh, next month. And in fact, is a movie coming out a year from now. So <laughs> you have... Ample time Indeed, to prepare. No the movie that also gives you ample time in many ways, whether it's in the context of the plot or whether it's in the watching experience. If there is fate, who can say? But in the Grand Bazaar of Istanbul, I chose a memento. Whatever it is, I'm sure it has an interesting story. The movie I was most excited for this month, and that's 3,000 Years of Longing. What did you make of this? And also maybe if you could unpack what the movie is trying to tell us. This is George Miller, first movie since Mad Max Fury Road, which came out in 2015. So it's been a while. It's based off of a short story called The Jinn and the Nightingale's Eye. And Jinn, a synonym of genie. And it's mm-hmm. pretty like kind of traditional in that sense, genie folklore. A woman um, played by Tilda Swint traveling to Turkey, she discovers a bottle and inside of it is a djinn who comes out and says, I'll grant you three wishes. And she is naturally skeptical, uh, sort of as she's she's professional in her professional life, a storyteller. And she's like, I know how this always ends. I don't trust you. He goes on to explain his entire life, how he told that wishes in the past and how he came to be in her hotel room in a really lovely looking terry cloth robe um <laughs> and uh trying to convince her to take on these wishes because if he grants all three then he will be granted his freedom it's kind of like the gist of the movie because so much of it is told through backstories um everything you said is a great setup for a movie and that's what i was excited for and that's kind of what i liked and yet ultimately the movie 
is effectively a romance. And mm -hmm. that is the part of the movie that to me kind of kills the movie because I just felt there was nothing really that was taking me toward this becoming like a romance movie, so to speak. And by romance, I don't mean like a romance where maybe it's part of the problem of the movie. It's not a movie where you really care about the romance, but that's ultimately where the movie is sort of going. Maybe the stories that the genie tells, which we can get into, you know, stories of his frustrations with love and his not you know making wrong choices in love but the movie choosing to go in the direction of a romance is kind of i would guess say that the second half of the movie and that to me like doesn't really connect enough with the first half which is what you just described really well i actually watched all of his movies toward the beginning of the pandemic i went through the whole his whole filmography and some of the movies i'd seen and some of them i hadn't i thought like a really rewarding exercise i've seen a lot of people kind of describe this movie negatively in comparison to mad max Hero because that movie was so dynamic and visceral and that this one is just like obviously more kind of meditative i think that people maybe misunderstand what mad max Hero is because Obviously, it's like, oh, well, it's just a big car chase. You go to one place and you come back. Um, and that's like obviously reductive um, because it is, you know, more exciting than that. But at the same time, like it also like has something to say. And I think that cuts through all of George Miller's films. And I think it's very present in this movie. And he's probably one of the best, if not the best, like existentialist director in you know certainly currently making movies maybe ever and all of his movies have a strain of this and and 3000 years of long is all about it they're just about sort of what it is to be human what it is to live to kind of try and unpack that in different ways every time and this movie kind of gets at that in a lot of ways they have they have like explicit conversations about it yeah about how you only live if uh, others can can see you and understand you and appreciate you and I think that there's a journey that they go to whilst being in a hotel room that is is pretty beautiful and I don't disagree with you in the sense that like once they leave it's less compelling but it it is like really only about a half hour of the movie that that where they are leaving you know this confined space um, yeah. and stopping with the backstory of the unfolding and i think that dips from excellent to fine instead of dipping from good to bad mm. that, that that's how i would i would delineate it like i think it's i think the first hour is really 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 good you know probably you know it was on pace to be you know one of my top 10 movies of the year i don't know if it'll end up in that spot or not from where i was at the beginning to the time when he's wrapping up telling his backstory, I'm like all in on this movie. And I agree that like, you know, it suffers a little bit as it shifts, but I still think like where both characters get from their introduction to that moment is, is pretty marvelous. The sitting in the terry cloth robes talking to each other really made an imprint on you was happy with more of that. And I think it's because I like Tilda Swinton a lot. And I think she has sort of a style that complemented Idris Elba in the, in the context of conversation and kind of sharing ideas that worked. What took me out of it was the the cutscenes. I found the whole kind of cutscenes of the of the genie's past where Idris Elba, the genie, is kind of going back and telling about the three mm -hmm. um, different, I don't know, women. I think it's all women, as I recall. Where they oh, all there made, was some uh, men. There was men in there too. 
Queen of Sheba. There's a whole Ottoman period where there's no one key wisher. Um, yeah. I guess, no, there really is. It starts with one key wisher. Later on, like a Turkish lady, um, I guess, in what is it, the 1800s or so. Um, She's like the smartest but, person who's ever lived. <laughs> yeah. I'm clearly not the smartest person because this damn cat of my wife just cut my finger while I'm Oh, gosh. I'm, I'm scratching my... Uh... Yeah, oh, man, cats are the worst. Um, but yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and all of those, like, cutscenes as i call them to me like the way they're filmed and the coloring there's very much like a video game cutscene feeling to them where like at some point i just i was i wasn't engaged with them particularly that whole middle muddled one the whole like ottoman family tribe type thing courtesans and all that sounds very romantic it sounds very orientalist and mysterious i just found it very much to be again like it felt like a video video game cutscene that maybe the second time I'm playing the game, I'm just pressing, you know, skip, skip, skip. And so I kind of wanted to skip through those and just get back to the dynamicism of the two leads wearing their robes and trying to like, you know, as you said, like existentially figure out the conflict between them. And maybe for you, they were like needed. They gave a certain, you know, kinetic energy to what otherwise was like a Corona movie. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's how I felt. Like, I thought that they were exciting. I didn't think they filmed, especially with his sort of first-person perspective. You know, you mentioned cutscenes from video games, and there were moments where it felt like that because you're seeing things from his perspective, and it's very stylized because he's meant to be invisible at times. But The Talking Rose was not uncompelling. I just think that you needed, like, to get from point A to point B, and so you needed to sort of see some of this stuff happening to understand, like, what the what makes this gin tick and how this woman is going to really transform over the course of this you know morning together transformation also didn't really work with me enough i mean tilda swinton was very yeah, I, deep in tilda swinton mode where she's that kind of like <laughs> almost robotic distant kind of completely in control of herself academic in the beginning who's ripping she was right out of movies. like her, yeah her wes anderson movies you know she yeah. was in a lot of those and she's dressed yeah. and styled like her, that her elegance and everything like that and the stakes that they set up at the beginning that you that you touched on really makes sense you know and it's something that i think any of us who've kind of grappled with like aladdin type stories always think about which is like you know the genie needs the wishes to happen and here you have someone who knows all about wishes stories and realizes particularly given the stories that the dumb genie is telling her that none of these like wishing genie stories ever go well for anyone and no right. one ever ends up happy which is one of the things that was kind of weird is that like the genie feels the need as you said to tell his story even though the more he tells his story in theory, it worsens his case, given his case is, please make three wishes and I'm free. And her case is, the stories of genies asking people to make wishes never work out for either one of them. And you yet keeps he giving feels... me more examples of this. <laughs> yeah. Now, where it ends up working out for her and for him is that his stories make her fall in love with him, which to me, like, didn't really make sense in the context of the movie even though i guess like that has to be the out of the movie because that's the way the movie kind of resolves that conflict between the two of them where she sees through kind of the the false hope of what you know a genie and his three wishes represent you know that conflict of you know how are they going to resolve the him needing wishes and her not believing that wishes are necessary particularly for her the way they get out of that when we think of Aladdin movies, obviously Aladdin most of all, oh, wow, you have a genie, like, yes, you have a superpower, like, amazing, you know, like, it's like, I don't know, Dorothy and her and her shoes, you get to, like, wish yourself back in Kansas or wherever, like, that's, like, the magical out. 
And in this case, they kind of show you how, no, like wishing whatever you want as like a get home free card isn't really so great. That setup that they they had and then the conflict between the two, that was what was driving the movie. And that's why I liked it. And then it just, the cutscenes as worsening that conflict made sense, but then they kind of just led into, okay, I like you now. What about the whole conflict between not being able to wish or not wanting to wish and and even the wish she makes, which, you know, I don't have to spell out maybe for spoiler reasons, the wish she makes is kind of a bit of a, I don't know, I don't really know how to like uh, accept that so much. Maybe you'd like to in the context of, you know, free choice and whatnot. But I thought the the first wish that she actually makes, I don't even remember if she makes three wishes or maybe she, she guess does. she does, but like yeah, she does. But like the first wish she makes is, you know, I felt a bit of a, again, it, it got me by left field. It didn't seem to fit with her character or what we yeah. were watching. So I was a little taken out by that. I don't disagree that it kind of came out of left field for me too. And once it happens, I can understand how you got there. I guess one of the things I'm still a little bit unsure about personally, and I hope this isn't too spoilery, but I wasn't totally clear if sort of this after hearing all of this I love you situation or if it was after hearing all of this I re- am ready once again to like reopen my heart for love and hey you're here you're obviously unattached beholden to me why don't we just do this you know I'm not yeah. disrupting somebody else's life what you've convinced me of is that I need love in my life not that I need your love necessarily in my life but I could be wrong yeah. I could I could be reading that wrong but that was sort of my impression i tend to be with the second one a bit more that one maybe works is that i mean not only is the whole like they fall in love bit doesn't work for me but the two of them really just don't have any romantic chemistry again both of them are acting well independently of each other but they're not acting well i think in relation to each other if that makes sense I think that, it's like i thought that they had good chemistry on screen but not in the movie is called three thousand years of longing and like even if you don't know that it's like sort of moving toward being a love story like that title is so evocative of yeah this like deep 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 passion that like is clearly not there between them i just think they're like fun sparring partners if anything else yeah you know? idris elba gives off the sense of longing in the way he tells his stories yeah but at the same I agree. time like a genie kind of has the right on screen to be portrayed as like removed from human emotions but you're right i mean certainly the title um leads you to a direction that the the relationship doesn't really satisfy at least as far as i'm concerned i on the whole would not recommend this movie it sounds like you would um, yeah i do actually the thing i like the most about it maybe is just i like the concept that it really pushes that a genie doesn't give you any wish you want a genie can only give your deepest desire as your wish and i thought that was like there was something I was thinking about a lot after the movie. I know it's not the main it, it, it's not the main point of the movie. I would say it's one of maybe the core subtexts of the movie, which is that it's not like a, you can wish for anything. It's you can only wish what is your real authentic desire, which um, again, gave me a bit of food for thought and like, you know, what do we really care about? And that's what we could be fulfilled if we could do, if we could have anything. The only anything you can have is the thing that you really care most about. It threw it for a loop because... The three choices are really fairly limited. Each of them has to be whatever is your sort of more most core desire at that given moment. I really like that kind of flip on how we think of getting what you want and how we think of, I guess, you know, 
genies and all that kind of uh, narrative. But I'm not really sure if that was like the, the focus of the movie. It's just sort of a <laughs> subtext that I, it's a subtext I took from it that I appreciated. But on the whole, I was kind of bored. I really was disappointed with the last uh, 30 minutes. I felt the characters didn't really connect with each other. Uh, and it's always a movie I would tell people, unfortunately, to skip. I will disagree respectfully. I thought it was worthy, even though I definitely am in the same boat as you in terms of what section of the movie is stronger than others <laughs> well let me give you quickly another one to skip i saw emily the criminal which is the aubrey mm-hmm, plaza right. movie they talk movies by the way emily in three thousand years were playing at the jerusalem film festival that i attended earlier in the year but actually both of them i didn't get to at the festival and because i knew they were coming out later in the summer i said i'll, I'll watch them like a layman not like a uh, entitled uh, festival goer um, which is really not my kind of uh, DNA. And what it is, Emily the Criminal, it's set in the contemporary times. Uh, Plaza plays this young woman who's saddled with debt. And as you can tell by the title, sort of like falls into a life of crime. I think she does like uh, credit fraud as a way to sort of make easy money. And then she sort of can't resist the temptation of kind of getting even more easy money. What I don't like about the movie is really two things. One is that it quickly becomes very much like a genre piece. I mean, it it is even from the setup. Like we've seen stories before about, you know, people who are sort of at their wits ends financially and therefore sort of let them lead that into crime. What I found hilarious, and I don't think the movie is meant to be played for laughs because it's a very serious movie, is that the kind of climactic scene that pushes her toward going all in on crime is when her friend gets her this job interview at like the fashion magazine where her friend works and where she sort of wants to work the whole movie. And then she goes in for the interview and it turns out that it's for an internship, which is unpaid for the first, you know, whatever, six months until you like prove yourself and then it becomes paid. And she kind of throws a fit and she's like, what? Like, I'm not making a salary. You're not paying me uh, like F this. I'm going to go off and be like a criminal and like ruin people's lives. And, and and I was like, I don't necessarily agree with unpaid internships, but getting rejected for an internship or getting rejected for a fashion magazine being like the moment that sets you off to a life of crime, I thought in taking it out of the movie's context is absolutely hilarious. So I was like laughing that about actually- that. But I don't think the movie was, uh, that was my favorite scene. Um, I don't think the movie was like trying to set that up. But the first half is a story about someone who's kind of at their wits ends and is falling into crime and, you know, hates their menial job. And then the second half is this life of a criminal, criminals, uh, criminals kind of deceiving each other. And then I, I won't ruin it, but suffice to say, one person ends up getting away with all the money and literally we've seen this in a thousand movies before and they escape to some foreign country and they're at the beach you know like um you know living their fantasy life and just felt they'd taken scenes from other movies for the last 20 minutes of this movie well like i just felt it was very broke by numbers that's my one thing my second thing is that aubrey plaza is getting a lot of this is the most interesting role of the year you know this is her best work to date i don't think so for two reasons i think she always in all of her roles has had this kind of like maybe not so subtle, crazy person. There's something in her eyes, there's something in sort of the way she catches her voice that always suggests that she could go off and be dangerous. And, you know, even when she's in a straight up comedy, um, there's a certain like danger to her, to her character that just like she has in her personality and she expresses on screen. And therefore the fact that in this movie, she plays someone who is very subdued. And I know like movie critics love subdued acting you know it's always like oh wow that person was so withdrawn and subdued oscar 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 like she plays a very subdued person who has this like crazy dangerous person vibe in her 
And I was like, okay, but she always has the crazy dangerous person vibe. And the only mm-hmm. thing you've done here, which is my second thing, is you've taken away all of her charisma. Because when I think of Aubrey Plaza, she has this kind of like, there's this like energy in her eyes and in the kind of like, she could say anything at any point and it could be hilarious. It could be scary. It could be, you know, dangerous. And and they take that away. They make her into this like very like withdrawn kind of frustrated with life type person who also still has that dangerous kind of, you know, she could kill you in a second type energy. You know, I think she's good. I just don't think that in the role she's given here and sort of the type by numbers story, there's so much there there. So ultimately, like, I wouldn't recommend Emily the Criminal either, um, except if you're like just a big Aubrey Plaza fan. Um, There's another movie that I meant to say that I didn't catch up with this month that is also sort of about someone at their wit's end who turns to a life of crime. It's based on a real story, though. Um, It's called Breaking. It has John Boyega as playing the main role, uh, but this is based on a real story. So John Boyega plays kind of the the soldier, and he takes hostage a bank. And then Okay Williams, in his last role, wow. he plays I think the police detective or whatnot, who kind of has to like negotiate down the hostage taking. So Breaking also came out this month. It kind of reminded me of this idea of Emily the criminal, which is you know young person in today's uh, day and age uh, feels like the system isn't letting them survive and turns to a life of crime or at least a criminal act to sort of resolve their situation. I was excited to see Emily the Criminal because it's an original story that could take me in any direction and it ended up not taking me in any new direction. And that's ultimately why it underwhelmed. Um, but I don't know if I've convinced you to still check it out by accident. I don't think I'll probably check that out. What What else from August did you catch up with if it's worth uh, touching on? Uh, otherwise, yeah, there's, I mean, the... there's one or two I want to I wanna update you on. The only other new title that I caught up with was called Samaritan. Um, and this was, and it stars Sylvester Stallone, a superhero movie that was not based on pre-existing IP. So mm-hmm. I thought like, okay, like this could be interesting. I would say it almost was. I would not recommend Samaritan, but more because I guess like, I don't know, it, it should have been a little bit better than it actually was. The whole premise of it is that There was these two brothers, one was called Samaritan, one was called Nemesis, and they had sort of a tragedy happen to them. And Samaritan, um, you know, decides he's going to be good and kind of uplift people, but then Nemesis decides he wants everyone to suffer the way he did. So he's going to be destructive. Were their names Samaritan and Nemesis before they came to those decisions, or they got those names afterwards? Uh, Unclear. (laughs) <laughs> okay because uh, that's a kind uh, of uh my, of... my two children i will call you nemesis yeah. <laughs> yeah. i think it's like um, we think it we always think of the word cain as like kind of a vindictive soul but that's yeah. because he's the biblical brother because of the like, story ends up yeah being, yeah i mean otherwise cain could have been this like nice sweet charming you know name that we sure gave our... bubbling underground of people who believe you know it's sort of like almost like qanon I guess, where they're like, oh no, Samaritan is real. Like he's coming back. Like he is going to save us from, you know, all the bad things happening in the real world right now. Um, and one of them is this little kid whose name is Sam. He ends up the one day he's like getting beaten in the alley. But Sam gets rescued by one of the old men in the neighborhood named Joe, who is Sylvester Stallone. And he like does a number on all these toughs with, you know, basically one arm tied behind his back. And Sam realizes that this is Nemesis. He's been around this whole time. He lives in the building across from me. And, you know, we need him to to put basically put the suit back on and, and do the right thing. Um, but he, Oh, wait. Oh, so it's Stallone plays Nemesis, the bad guy? No, no. Stallone is Samaritan. Oh, okay. I thought 
Stallone with one hand is Nemesis. I thought cute Sam no. was like, oh. No, no, no. He, he, Sam, Sam is getting beaten up by these, like, you know, criminals. And Joe slash Samaritan comes to, like, save oh, okay. him. Okay, got um, it. Okay, and got he, it. Wants, he wants Joe to save everybody. But Joe doesn't really feel like doing that. So the most interesting stuff is just, like, you have all these characters who are kind of on the margins of society for a variety of reasons could have kind of done a little bit more with that than they do falling back on superhero cliches and because he's still Sylvester Stallone and is you know probably 70 some years old bad the action probably is a little it's a little janky yeah so yeah um it doesn't really come together but like I said it's also not like a total disaster it just does it have that does it have that like Irishman you know when he's trying to punch someone and you're <laughs> just feeling bad for like the guy getting punched. Well, or, like, they, feeling... I mean, I guess they did a good job of like kind of working that in narratively because they make him seem like he like doesn't need to make any sort of effort at all. So it's just like all he does is swing an arm and then like you see somebody go like flying like comically. Initially, I was excited and then turned off by the whole kind of aging action stars still being like action stars in movies i mean and literally yeah. stallone made a whole series about this very theme you right. know with expendables, expendables yeah. where all these like aging heavies are still like punching and kicking people and i just want to be like please like we have so many amazing ways to show action movies these days with younger guys who are like incredible athletes or incredible yeah. at fighting or whatnot and you know put those people on screen and make those people be the action stars and stop making like Sylvester Stallone like yawn in my direction and then like I fall over so I'm turned off by the whole like aging action stars as as still being I mean again it's not the 80s it's not the early 90s anymore you know to his credit Schwarzenegger is making cute little shorts on uh, TikTok or whatnot I don't know what you know where he tells you about politics or the environment or his donkeys Um, and, and Stallone as well like you know Go make two minute shorts about whatever interests you and um, let someone else like put on the gloves is I noticed that uh, Euron Greyjoy is in this movie in some context. Uh, and so I'm assuming he's the bad guy in some context. Because, Could you believe it? Yeah. Yeah. He has like a very bad guy mug for for movies. But, uh, you know, I assume they didn't like. Uh, maybe they did. Maybe they made him as much of a sort of a, a one-toed bad guy as they did in poor Game of Thrones the last season. Yeah, but, yeah uh, he's not subtle at all. <laughs> yeah, okay. So he's been pigeonholed as like the completely unsubtle villain in kind of yeah, all of his basically. films, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, he was such a must- mustache-twirling, you know, creep in the end I of know. Game of Thrones where I think they kind of, his career has maybe been ruined as a result. Um, okay, so it sounds like you're going to enthusiastically recommend that I see Samaritan before the end of the year. Is that fair? I mean, you should get off this call right now and do it, yes. I had a chance to catch up with two of the movies I was most excited for this year. One is well-known to everyone, and that's Nope. Nope came to streaming. Um, and so uh, I guess I waited and I caught it in the second wave. And it's interesting just in terms of if you follow movie Twitter, it did lead to sort of this resurgence of people talking about it, which I also just kind of find interesting in how a streaming date, I mean, I guess it's obvious, but like a streaming date really matters to certain people. Like there's all certain people who, and I don't want to like, I could have seen open theaters. I didn't, but there's certain people who either can't or just don't prefer to, or just don't get around to seeing things when they come out in theaters. And that date when something, if it's a, a weighted enough movie, the date when it comes to streaming is still an event. 
if it's a movie mm. you're excited enough for. And I saw that with Nope. I mean, Nope, for like a week when it came out this August, it felt like a, a premiere in a certain sense because there are all these people talking about it. If only a lot of them, because it's movie Twitter where they see movies a thousand times, a lot of them were just excited to talk about Nope again. Uh, but some of them had seen it for the first time, like me. And then the other right. one is a movie called Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, uh, yeah. which is like a stop motion animated, completely different from Mad God that uh, kind of horrific uh, stop motion animation that I spoke about with Justin earlier this year. I actually have the two of them ranked next to each other in my rankings. So it's funny, I'm looking at Mad God and I'm looking at Marcel Deschel. Marcel Deschel based upon a YouTube series that I was completely unfamiliar with that came out uh, years ago where they made like three or four of these YouTube shorts about you know each of them being a minute long where there's like a made up little shell and he is like, what is the term? Humanized, meaning he has a face yeah. and eyes and, and he wears shoes. And, but he's, this, he's the size of a shell and he's filmed in like a real world context. And he's kind of a sweet character that says kind of endearing things to the audience in a documentary type form. So what they did is they made a movie exactly based on that, where the movie is literally about the fact that he's this famous YouTube kind of meme. And therefore, it's like a documentary about him being a documentary YouTube uh, figure sort of the overlay that the drama that the movie introduces is that he's trying to look for his family of shells that were taken away when the couple that lived in their house uh, got divorced or broke up and so <laughs> when the husband left he accidentally took all the brother and sister shells with him leaving Marcel by himself living in this house this Airbnb uh, with his grandma. Uh, the movie's gotten enthusiastic reviews. I mean, it pretty much has like 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was a movie I would recommend, maybe because the reviews were so high, I was underwhelmed. My kind of one sentence on it is that it does show a genuine creativity to an extent, but it clearly meanders way beyond the payoff and afterwards i saw one of the original youtube uh, videos which they include in the movie a bit but then if you just go on youtube you can find them they're from like again about a decade 15 years ago and they work much better as youtube than a full-length movie meaning the kind of the offbeat sweetness the kind of very twee hipster wisdom of having a shell say these like endearing things to the audience it works very well for like a 90 second clip it doesn't work very well in a 90 minute movie and they stretch basically. And, you know, it's, it's a classic like SNL clip that becomes a movie that we sometimes see with comedies. And I uh. think it doesn't work to the movie's favor here. At some point you're like, Oh, I get it. Like it's, it's cute. He's a shell. And he's saying these like wise lessons about life to me, but he's a shell beyond that. The movie really has nothing more to do. So it kind of just keeps repeating that the drama of him finding his family is like very kind of, I guess you could say like kids cartoon um, done in a kind of a light way, but still um, that doesn't really like do anything extra for me. So it, it's a recommend. I have it kind of at the bottom of my bucket of like movies I would recommend this year so far, uh, okay. but I do have it right beneath Mad God. So if you could only choose one stop animation that came out in 2022, I would choose the one about like the end of the world as we know it uh talking about you know uh oppenheimer's uh, movie i would go for mad god over marcel the shell because i think matt they're both inventive but mad god is like inventive to the nines it's like nothing i've ever seen before even if it's horrific and i'm not a horror guy well marcel the shell is like very it's very trite it's very like okay that was cute um and so I, I don't really understand why it has like i think just because rotten tomatoes the algorithm the way it works is that yeah i think that's it it's like everybody likes it it's a movie that's hard to hate, but like yeah, to me, it's right. not a movie I'm going to remember 
more. Uh, literally, I remember the YouTube clip that I saw afterwards a bit more. Yeah, the YouTube yeah. clip was also funnier. You know, it was just it was more original, I guess. Like, was it wasn't it wasn't labored over by a team of like you know three hundred people like a Hollywood production is. Yeah. So um, yeah, that's that. my that's my that's my take on Marcel. Nope. It was my least favorite Jordan Peele movie. Still liked it, and I'm yeah kind of curious to see it again. See if it kind of clips a little bit more. Yeah. So it's easy to see now. I guess I liked it a lot. The two things I really like about Nope, one is thematic elements in there, some of which I agree with you sort of require almost a second viewing. I think the thematic elements in Nope are more ambitious than anything he's done before. And I, I think they're kind of a bit more direct in Get Out and the movie he made last year, and therefore they're a bit more accessible. I think some of the various themes he's working with in Nope are a bit more complex. Swings, he makes a bigger swing, which is what I love. Like, I love the fact that, like, a director can do almost everything. He's someone who has a sort of Tarantino-esque, like, took a while maybe to, like, get into mature movie making, but loved movies the whole time on the way there. And, you know, there's all sorts of call-outs in Nope to all sorts of classic movies. But again, like, the themes that he's working with I think he he really swings for a home run or at least for like a triple uh, with the various kind of ambitious themes he's he's grappling with. And yeah. I was very impressed by that. And then second, I would just say like the, the design, like the design of the alien. Yeah. Incredible, like really well done. And like, I don't know how much that's the director. I don't know how much that's sort of his extended team. I thought the characters were a bit flat, particularly the brother and sister. You know, I don't think that they're acted poorly per se. I just didn't know enough about them. I didn't care enough about them. They were just kind of two empty roles. I, again, this goes to the themes I loved, like the way in which what does film mean and what does it mean to capture something in today's age of like TikTok videos and in the original age of Hollywood, you know, the first thing caught on screen and literally having the symbolism of like maybe the last thing we'll ever catch on screen before the aliens kill us all, being a black man on a horse and the first thing, you know. So the way in which he ties all these things together and I guess, no, I do remember now, the main character here is called OJ, which is obviously also very right, uh, yeah, deliberate. metaphoric, you know, in terms of like the OJ being caught on camera in the 90s, you know, driving away with his uh, his car yeah i don't know the, the characters are flat and then the ending i don't know what kind of ending i needed but like the ending here without saying what it is like the way the movie ties it up to me was a bit flat like there just wasn't enough there there we don't have to unpack exactly i don't really even know what like the message at the end of the ending really is a movie i was really impressed by i was like wow that's beautiful as i watched it and um one of my favorites of the year Get Out like landed with me immediately, but us, I think it took sort of like seeing it again for me to be like, oh, okay, like I see all this now. It kind of came together a little bit more. It's just, yeah. I'll feel similar about Nope, but I'm, if I don't, I'm kind of curious why, you know? So yeah. I'll explore it again soon. I really didn't think Nope was like a big movie that you could spoil. And that what I don't understand is so much of the buildup to Nope was like, oh, don't tell us anything about the movie yeah. and don't go in knowing anything about the movie. Like, it's fine to go in knowing that this is a movie about like space invaders. It's fine to go in knowing that this is like a flying saucer movie, right? Like, how does that uh, yeah, mean anything? I think everybody did. I like, I don't think they were especially no, shy about I don't know. that. No, but like the lead up to Nope was like, don't even watch the trailer or like we know nothing about this movie outside that there's a cloud i remember i remember like the lead up was like because i knew it what was is an it? alien movie um i tried to see this foreign language three-hour sci-fi action movie called alienoid which has been getting a bit of love it's from korea but i followed the rrr script john which is i couldn't get english subtitles so i watched it in a foreign language and i figured if it's an exciting enough action movie it'll still work even without understanding the language 
And I can tell you that it is not an exciting enough action movie because I gave up halfway through. Yeah, that's all I have from August. Um, I guess from Classic Corner, I already kind of mentioned earlier that I watched Strange Love. I've been doing a Kubrick marathon. Um, and I think I talked about a couple of those movies on the last episode. Have you ever seen the Kubrick's Lolita? No, I haven't. Definitely not like one of his best movies, but I, I think I appreciated it more watching it this time than the first time I saw it the way he tells the story and the what the changes he makes to the story by kind of bringing the murder up front and which of like, which of the kubricks you've seen has like it's been hard for you to forget i did i watched all of his movies um you know many of them for the first time about 10 years ago i'm going and kind of doing the whole thing again now some of them i haven't seen since then so a lot of okay. the earlier ones like i i only watched the killing you know this is my second time seeing the killing second time seeing paths of glory um lolita I would say of those uh, that I've seen, The Killing is probably the most enjoyable just because it's not a gross sort of pervy movie like Lolita and <laughs> also not like a really depressing like war execution movie like Paths of Glory. So like, yay, The Killing. I think like there's stuff to appreciate in all three of those. And then Spartacus is sort of like the big epic he made. And then uh, I mentioned Strange Love, which is just sort of unassailable. So a good idea. I'm not going to try to match your Classics Corner this month because <laughs> my Classics Corner was uh, trying to remember in a, in a failing attempt what I did last fantasy football season and how I don't want to repeat those mistakes. And then of course I went into the draft and repeated all those same mistakes. Oh, uh, well, there's still that's time. The, yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the, that's the beauty of uh, having an off season, which uh, I don't know if we give ourselves an off season in, in uh, there will be pod and uh, you know, maybe no we do we do give we ourselves do a little Jan- bit of like Jan- a month or two there yeah january february is uh march is our sort of opening year off season but it feels i have to say i mean we said this at the top and i guess we'll end with this it feels like this year is kind of taking it had like a brief spark in like april march april where there was like batman and northman and yeah i didn't even yeah. like i didn't even like either of those so much but you know unbearable <laughs> weightness of being and everything everywhere all at once and kimmy was you know pretty good like there was a few kind of like oh wow this is going to be a year um and then we've kind of like settled into like a long i guess you could say it's the, it's not the off season it's like baseball it's like the middle of the season where you're kind of like Is yeah there really right. like are there really this many games too much <laughs> we're swinging at balls we're swinging we're swinging at strikes you know we're not really hitting anything out just yet hey there's more to come the playoffs are still ahead of us so what to look forward to john i'll catch you I soon feel like i've been locked up tight for a century of lonely nights waiting for someone to release me is my way, but that don't mean I'm gonna give it away, baby, 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 oh, oh, oh. my body's saying let's go, oh, oh, oh. but my heart is saying no, if you you do